HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Underground Meats, undergroundmeats.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today, we're going to be talking about Indian food. And if I, if I ask you what you think of when you think of Indian food, I would say most likely people would respond with, oh, curries and lots of spices. And indeed, that's something you would find. But there's so much more to the food of India. In fact, the food of India is much like the country itself, an amalgam of cultures and ethnic influences. Uh, India is one of the oldest civilizations, and it is one of the largest countries. In fact, it's the seventh largest country and the second most populated country. The diversity alone leads you to, to understand somewhat why there is such an amalgam of food. But you don't need to hear that from me. My guest today has just released, hot off the presses, a new book called Feasts and Fasts, A History of Food in India. And she's Colleen Taylor Sin. Colleen is an independent food historian and a writer specializing in Indian cuisine. And she's the author of several books, including Curry, A Global History, and she was on the show to talk about that with me, as well as Turmeric, which she was also on the show. She has written many other books and articles and lately has been focusing mostly all on Indian food. Welcome, Colleen. She joins us today from, from Chicago. Welcome. Hi, Linda. Thank you for having me on your show again. The book is absolutely fantastic. It's overwhelming. Um, and and. I have so many questions that at, I'm not sure where to start, and hopefully we'll have time. Um, but one thing I wanted to know, because I, you know, people do have a, an idea, they think, of what Indian food is. Is there a gastronomic culture that's common to all India's, Indians, in your, your opinion? 
That's a really good question, and, and it's so hard to answer. I mean, I tried to answer it in the book and tried to look at things that were, I mean, really, uh, you know, it, like, it, it, you know, some, somebody, there was once a debate on, um, on Yelp about what is French food, and there was so much argument, and the, the conclusion finally was that French food is the food eaten in France. That was the definition. Well, of course, India is infinitely more diverse because apart from the fact there's uh, you know, dozens of languages. There's eight religions, and of course, every religion has its own own uh, food ways. So, um, if I look at, if I look, go back in history and I look what people are now, I kind of narrowed it down to a few things, and and they're really um, fairly, uh, you know, fairly small. I mean, I think the most obvious is the use of spices. That's something that really distinguishes. Um, Indian cuisine, um, I mean, all cultures use it, but, but the intensive use of, of, of spices. And this is something that goes back 2500 B.C. Um, in the great Indus Valley civilization where they found traces of turmeric and garlic and, and um, you know, pepper, kind of a 4,000-year-old Indian curry. So that's one thing. Um, another thing, and this is going to sound very odd, but one vegetable that's really had um, been a very key role in Indian cuisine is the eggplant, or the aubergine, as they call it in, um, in, in England. Hmm. And I, I've looked at this, and every all the historical research I've done, I keep coming across the eggplant. I suppose one reason is it's fairly easy to grow, and also it has the ability to absorb flavors. Right, and certainly with the use of all those spices. I mean, it's, as you say, what a, what a great vehicle for, for all those wonderful flavors. Well, you and I had discussed something before earlier, um, and that was about why so little has been written about the history of Indian food. I mean, you this is really, you could call it a seminal work that you've just done, um, because there really is no, maybe one other comprehensive work, not much written history on the his, on the history of food in India. Why do you think this is? Well, that's true. I mean, the one book that um, really uh, preceded me is by a, a professor, K.T. Achaya, um, A History of Indian Food, I think it's called. And it's really, um, it's really a good book. Um, but it, it was written quite a, a you know, while ago. And also, um, there's been a lot of archaeological discovery since then. And uh, apart from that, there really hasn't been anything. Um, there's several reasons for this. I think it's, I think it's changed. Now, I think um, people are getting in India are getting very interested in the, in the history of, of their own cuisine. Um, I think that there, there's going to be other books that are written. I know there's been a couple of te- somebody's doing a TV series on the history of Indian food. So um, I hope this changes. And one problem is like there's really been a, a shortage of, of translations from the from works um, like Sanskrit, which was the the written language of India of, of, for for a long time. Um, there's a lot of of works there, but some and unfortunately some were translated from my book, but but others have not been. Um, so that's kind of been a stumbling block. Right. Well, it's interesting because you title the book "Feasts and Fasts," and and that takes us right into. Um, Something that is a tremendous influence. We said religion has a is a plays a big role in the foods um, and the rituals. So feasts and fasts, all part of religion and rituals. Um, this pretty much determines what people's uh, what different sects and people are eating. Correct. 
Absolutely. There's a wonderful quote from Mark Twain who said, um, when it comes to religion, all other countries are paupers. India is the only millionaire. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's so true. I mean, there's eight religions. Four of the great religions of the world arose in India. Um, You know, Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism. And then, of course, you have Christians, you have Muslims, you have, um, uh, you know, you have uh, Sikhs and um, even a few Parsis. So, um, so that's really, and, and then even within each religion, you have different sects, you have, you know, d- different regional differences. So it, it's really hard to generalize about what everybody eats. And even within the same religion, there are different practices. Right. So in the early days, <laughs> we're, we're talking, you know, 1700 BC, um, you had, I guess you had to, to find a jumping off point, right? And so you you started the book with a chapter called The Age of Ritual. Um, why this period and what was going on? Well, the, the jumping off point really was the Indus Valley Civilization, which was in the first chapter. Um, I didn't call it that. But that's really, I think it's one of the most fascinating stories in the history of archaeology. And it's, even now they're doing all these, it was like a million square miles. It was very sophisticated. They had trade with the Middle East. They had trade with Africa. And, um, it, and um, so even now, the excavations, they found sites 60 miles from Delhi. It used to be thought it was just, you know, in, in the far... Um, far north northwest so that's really interesting and they're doing like um, analyses of residues from cooking pots and they found or, or cow teeth like what bovines so they're finding out what people ate even then and and i i'm just so excited to you know read about what's going on there um so that's kind of the starting point and both for india and pakistan and i really have to say the title india it's a little bit misleading because I mean, it's only been six, 70 years or so that you've had these separate countries. So there really is a continuum of food. I mean, just because you cross the border into Pakistan or Bangladesh, the food doesn't change suddenly. You know, there, there's great, great similarities. So um, in a way, I wish I could have called my book South Asia, but it, it, this, is the, this is the title. So, um, right. so now, I've, now I've digressed. I forgot what you that's, No, that's quite all right. No, it's, it's very interesting because, indeed, when one thinks of, of – uh, the southern Asian cuisines and countries, all these flavors, uh, as you say, do sort of cross the borders. And because they all were all one nation or, or um, you know. Political entity kind of. Yeah, yeah, at various times in history. I mean, if, I, I, this, if you look at maps, you know, if you look at the, well, the greatest emperor really was the um, the Ashokan, the Mauryan Empire. I think that was like about 300 BC. And that did cover most of the subcontinent. That's kind of the great, you know, the, the greatest empire, even even bigger than the British Empire. So, I mean, there was a lot of going back and forth, and there were, and also there was a lot of outside influence. I mean, I mentioned the Indus Valley Civilization. India's always been a part of a global economy. I mean, even thousands of years ago, it's at the center of trade routes between Africa, between China, the Middle East. So you always had traders going by land, by sea. They were bringing things in. They were taking things out. So there's always been this wonderful interplay with the rest of the world. Hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because that also, um, you look at the country, you look at the area, uh, and just as you say, things coming in from all all over the world, there's also a, ver- a, a vast variation in the climate, and that must affect the food tremendously. 
Oh, absolutely. India has so many different zones. I mean, from the Himalayas and the, and the northeast and the mountains to the, the coast, which is very tropical, like Kerala, where the spices originally came from, and the south and then the desert. Oh, absolutely. Incredible. And, you know, that really um, determined what people ate, because until recent times, the transportation was really bad. So basically, you just ate what was grown locally. So that's another reason it's hard to, you know, define a national cuisine, because everybody kind of just ate what they could could grow. Hmm, interesting. And so you, you, you did say, if anything, if any one thing tied the cuisine together, it would be the use of spices. Uh Let's let's branch off into um, the particular religions and how those influenced the cuisines. Now, is it true that about eighty percent of of India is Hindu? Yes, about eighty percent is Hindu, and uh, I think about I've got a little table here. Yeah, that's the majority, and then the next the next largest is is um, are, are, are Muslims, and I think they're about uh, they're about thirteen percent. So India really is the second largest Islamic country in the world after uh, Indonesia. And then Christians are about 2%, and then you have small groups of other things. But even the Christians, that's 24 million people. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, not a 2%. tiny amount. So, so all these groups you have their own food ways. Right, 2%. It's all relative of, of what the big number is, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, talk to me about, uh, about the Hinduism not, and how much, I mean, it, there's a lot of vegetarianism. And basically, this is the, the cradle of vegetarianism, if you will, right? So, it is, except that only really about 35% of, of Hindus are strictly vegetarian. It's really not a, it, I mean, often it's more economic vegetarianism than anything, because, you know, meat is, is, was traditionally, well, still is very expensive. So, um, and it really varies by state. Like in some states, in, in Western India, maybe in Gujarat, for example, 65, 70% of the people will be vegetarians. If you go to Bengal, West Bengal or Kerala, it's like 2%. Hmm. And this really this this reflects a lot of things, but um, so it's 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 gain. It's hard to generalize, and um, you know who and 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 some people eat some things. Some some people this sounds odd, but they'll eat chicken, but they won't eat onions and garlic. So there's almost an infinite number of variations in in what people eat. Yeah, that was something that surprised me. I, I read that that there are certain sects of Hinduism that actually forbade the use of onions and garlic. Yeah, that's pretty. That's not uncommon. I mean, uh, it started with the Jains, but even during certain fasts, for example, um, you know, people didn't. People usually don't eat onion and garlic during fasts. The original. They've always. There's always been a a prejudice against onions and garlic, and I think um, they were all. They were believed to inflame the passions. I don't know if that's true or not, but to kind of excite the mind, and so they would not give. You know, they wouldn't lead to spirituality. That was kind of the the belief. Hmm. So in come all the uses of spices then, right? So, you know, we've got um, all the spices helping out to, to vary those flavors. of, And then a lot of lentils and beans in the diet. Right. And I think together with lentils and together with um, wheat or rice, which are the two basic um, grains, they give you most of the amino acids you need. So, And the other thing, too, it's really interesting, is very few Indians are vegans. Um, so dairy products are always a part of people's diet. And that, that's, that's 
very important because, um, you know, if you're not eating meat, this is so they, people drink milk, they have yogurt. And, of course, another thing I should mention is, as a very uh, old and widespread ingredient is, is ghee, which is clarified butter. And that's, um, that's always been highly valued, and it's used in, in, in Hindu cooking and in, in Muslim cooking. It's just considered the, the best, and it's considered to have all kinds of spiritual and values as well. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the, um, the climate and what grows well, uh, and, and there is quite a use of, of wheat because we know they have all the different breads, uh, if, where's the, we talked about the cradle of, of vegetarianism, where's the, 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 the cradle of, of um, you know, the fertile cradle? Is there a particular area that grows yeah, this, more like wheat? The, they call it the bread basket. It's all across northern India and Pakistan. It's, it's kind of the wheat belt, and that's very fertile. The, Gun, the Gangetic Plains, it's called. It was watered by the, by the tributaries coming from the Himalayas. So that was very, and that was a great wheat-growing area. But then in, um, in Bengal and in, um, in Kerala and other parts in South India, it's, it's a, a rice, um, it, 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 rice is the basic staple. In Western India, you had millets uh, and sorghum, and, um, because that was all that would grow there in the deserts of Rajasthan. It was very dry. And, um, What's, and those, it's interesting because they kind of have been dying out because they're cons- they were considered kind of inferior grains. Like if people could eat, wheat, have wheat, they much preferred it. And I, I love these, these breads. You can get them in, in Indian grocery stores. Well, what's happening now is there's um, a new interest in health. And so in kind of very you know, trendy restaurants in the cities, they will be serving these ancient breads that have kind of died out of fashion because they say they're healthy and they, you know, I don't know if they are, but there's kind of um, this little bit of resurgence. Not like, unlike um, America and and other cultures where the ancient grains have taken root and and are having a renaissance of their own. Yeah, I didn't think of that. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, interesting. Um, There are... uh, so many other influences. That I, I'm going to touch on a couple of them, but I think it's good if we'll take a short break now, and that way we can just continue okay. our conversation right after the break. Okay, so stay tuned. You are listening to Mad as Dogs by The Hollows, and this is A Taste of the Past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Underground Meats. We're proud to count Underground Meats as a business member of Heritage Radio Network. Located in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, Underground Meats creates handcrafted salami and cured meats. They source from the nation's most quality pasture-raised heritage pigs and goats. The Underground Collective also offers a variety of classes and workshops. We encourage you to visit undergroundmeats.com to learn more. You can also get your own Underground Meats care package by becoming a VIP member of Heritage Radio Network. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate for more. Okay, we are back. Got that taken care of. And I'm talking with Colleen Sen, who is an, a food historian and has written a marvelous book called Feasts and Fasts, A History of Food in India. So 
Colleen, I wanted to talk about the many other influences um, in that determine what Indian food is, and certainly uh, the colonization. We you know we we can't overlook that because that that was such a major part of of the what happened in the culture of, of India. Um, what about the influences of you know, the Dutch, the British? Yeah, there's no doubt. I, I think probably the um, the group that had the most influence would be the Portuguese because they were the first really to come to India, had a great empire for a hundred years, which kind of collapsed. But they they um, really brought the um, you, you know you must have talked a lot with other guests about the Colombian exchange, mm-hmm. and this was this great exchange of, of um, fruits and vegetables between the old and the new world. And of course, they introduced things like potatoes, tomatoes. Um, and chilies, you know, we think the chilies are ancient, but they were introduced in the 16th century. So um, pineapples were another thing, and all things that were really are now part of, you know, inseparable from Indian cuisine were brought by the Portuguese. And then in return, of course, India gave the rest of the world the mango and some other fruits. So that was, um, and then in, in Goa, where there's still Portuguese speakers, and it, it became part of India, I think, only in I think 1948, there was um, there's uh, this very wonderful Goan cuisine, which is kind of a hybrid Portuguese-Indian. The most famous dish is vindalu, which comes in the Portuguese word meaning um, garlic and oil. So I think they had an influence. The British had some influence, but I think in this case, the influence has been stronger the other way, in as much as the, colon- the, the colonized have really Im- affected the, the colonizers in the terms of, of Britain, where, you know, curry is ubiquitous and is the most, you know, Indian food is the most common fast food. So I think the influence has gone that way. Yeah, well, and actually, and that was... Uh, very interesting in your book, uh, The Global History of Curry. Um, I was amazed to find out that it was, it, you're right, and the, the British popularizing that Indian cuisine. Um, let's move on to food as medicine. Is there a lot of ritualistic um, um, and, and medical use, like Ayurvedic uh, medicines and, and things that, that really look upon food as being medicine? This is this was one of the things that when doing the research that I really I really was kind of surprised. I have to say this because um, there's a lot of confusion about this. And I went to the Ayurvedic texts, um, you know, by these by Sharaka and, and Shushruta, which were written, you know, hundreds of years ago. And what's interesting is that. There's a great distinction between the food that is used for to to benefit yourself for spiritual benefits and those that were um, uh, that that were used to treat diseases. And there's a wonderful quote by um, by one of the ancient physicians that said the purpose of uh, medicine is not the purpose of food in medicine is not to promote vir- virtue. What is it for then? It's to cure diseases and. So what you find is you find a lot of meat, you find even alcohol, which is usually kind of frowned upon by, you know, in, in traditional Indian society. You have, there's, you have suggestions for what kind of wine goes, what kind of alcohol goes with what food, and you have a lot of um, very interesting recipes that are given in these ancient books. People get this confused with, you know, the idea of the three, um, you know, sattvic, uh, tamasic, and... and um, the third one, the the three different uh, rajasic, the three different kind of attributes of food. But that really comes from the spiritual tradition. It doesn't come from the medicinal tradition, and that's um, that really surprised me. So, talk about those spiritual 
um, attributions a little bit? Well, um, there's three qualities um, that are both qualities of food and qualities of of, um, people. And there's rajasic, which is kind of energy. Oh, in the food, it means spicy food, um, food that gives you energy, and if, and it's supposed to enhance those qualities in people. It makes you quick. Warriors are supposed to eat this food. It's supposed to give you energy and things. Then there's tamasic food, which is food that is um, putrid, that is, um, oh, like old meat, alcohol, rotten food, and it's supposed to make you kind of feel sluggish and lazy, and it's not, not good. And then there's uh, sattvic food, which is food that is um, milk, uh, ghee, vegetables, um, you know, sugar, actually, and these are food that are supposed to enhance your spiritual qualities, give you, uh, make, en- enable you to meditate, give you peace, give you, you know, um, spiritual virtues. And actually, I think there's something to this, because when I've had a meal of, you know, steak and red wine, I really feel tamasic. I really feel sluggish <laughs> and horrible. I, I think there's a lot to this. Yeah, indeed. Well, the, the humanists had certain <laughs> ideas on that, too. So it's no, you know, it's not a an unusual um, uh, attribute, you know, thought in, in, um, in philosophy and, and in spirituality. And it's interesting because I think that overall uh, the Westerners look upon the Indian culture as being a much more spiritual culture. And uh, so the food, it, it's interesting to, to sort of hear about what uh, religion, how the role that religion plays in what people eat. And certainly the, the feasts, I mean, we, we see the wonderful celebrations, if it's a wedding celebration or the um, Holly Festival or, or just the wonderful um, amounts of, you know, dancing and colors and foods that are eaten and preparation for days and days. What um, what feasts in particular do you think were are have been most influential or are the oldest ones that are continuing today? You take it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know really. I mean, um, as you said, food is an uh, important part of every every festivity. Um, there's certainly uh, one of the things that's always associated with holidays in India are, are sweets. And India has an incredibly rich tradition of sweets because sugar was actually first refined in India. And India, middle class Indians, I think their per capita sugar consumption is maybe the highest in the world. We're, you know, we're talking middle class. And anytime you go to visit anyone, you take sweets, you give them as gifts. And any holiday, the gods have their favorite sweets. Lord Ganesh is always shown with modaka. He loves that. He he, he, you know, so it's really, um, and, and they're usually made of, of milk and um, sugar are kind of two basic components. And obviously those are, you know, they would, they would give you energy. I mean, they would be, especially people who were, who were poor, this would be a chance to really enjoy these things. So I would say that that's an important um, part of every, every festival in India. Hmm, interesting. I, I know the sweets there, um, uh, Michael Crandall has, it did a lot of, Writing another uh, mm-hmm. guest on the sweets and the sweets in Indian, I was amazed at just the the sheer um, number and diversity of of the different sweets and how it was big industry is big industry there. Absolutely, you Surprised know my husband me. is from Bengal and Bengalis are very snobbish about their sweets and I think rightly so because their sweets are really exquisite. I mean, mm. there's a sweet called shandesh that um, I once did an, a paper on shandesh and I ate 20 shandeshes in one sitting. They're little fudge-like things and I didn't feel sick. They were so good. But then we have a local sweet maker who's from Gujarat and his family is uh, Sukariya. They've been in the business for 130 
30 years. The sweets are wonderful, but they're totally different. And um, there's, there's seasonal sweets. There's Ayurvedic sweets. There's, it's, it's a whole world. I mean, someone could write this book after book on Indian sweets. Well, you know, it's interesting because you just even touching as lightly as we have on a lot of different areas of the food, it just seems like there are there's so much information that it's and, and even your book was you know to me just sort of exhausting and you know and mind blowing <laughs> because it you know there's so many years and so much to cover. But it, I I really enjoyed. Um, just following the timeline, if nothing else, and and of course we talked about the diaspora of, of Indian cuisine with, with the, the the colonization, particularly the British, and they're the they were the best. Mm. Um, but as far as um, a, an overview of Indian cuisine, um, for instance, the uh, the meals, the times of days of the meals, the types of meals, is there is there a pattern that you might talk about there? Well, usually the big meal in India is, is a is a midday meal. Um, that's pretty universal, um, and you know it could be very late. Um, in fact, uh, I'm trying to think. I wrote something recently on this, a book on the meal, and I interviewed some relatives of my husband in Calcutta. Yeah, so they would eat about one thirty or two, and that would be the big meal. And then the dinner, um, and then people have a, a another uni- pretty universal thing is an afternoon tea. It has different names. So what happens is about you know five o'clock again, people would come back from work. And they would have a, a meal of, um, it would be sweets and snacks and, and tea or milk or coffee, depending on what they drink. And then dinner would be, be typically later. In Calcutta, for example, people eat dinner at 10 or even 11 o'clock. They're like the Spaniards in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Delhi, they would eat it earlier. It is, again, it's, uh, there's a lot of regional variations. Now, you talked about the use of ghee. And, uh, of course, anyone who has looked at a, an Indian recipe and uh, you know knows that uh, the clarified butter, the ghee, is important in the cuisine, as you mentioned. Uh, and it was is this is this used pretty much throughout most of the regions? Yeah, by people who can afford it, it, it certainly is. I mean, uh, I think it, pure ghee is a bit more expensive, but it's it's considered yeah, it's considered to have a lot of good attributes. And I suppose when if people are calorie deprived, it is a good thing to have too. And in and in cooking techniques, is there anything that I mean? Is there anything in particular that varies region to region? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I know certain regions. I really uh, one thing that is not generally done in India. One one um, technique that is missing is is baking. Uh, there's very little baking. Um, you, you know those wonderful breads. People would take them to a communal oven. Very few people had have ovens in their homes. Um, so I think the most common ingredient really is frying, and um, it would be deep frying is popular, or kind of stir frying, um, and then and then of course very slow cooking. Um, I guess actually that's probably a very common thing is um, you know you saute things, you sow the spices, and then you cook. Uh, add liquid and you cook over a, a slow fire, which in the old days would be wood or it would be cow dung, which was a popular cooking fuel. And you would just cook it very slowly. Um, it's quite different from China, where China, everything is stir-fried. It's cooked and it's served. Um, one thing, I, I, somebody said recently that this may be because of the, you know, you'd have a joint family, so you would have to, you couldn't kind of bring dishes out one after another, you'd have to have everything prepared and then bring it out. So that's really, um, I think that's the common thing. What people think of as a curry, you know, a dish with a liquid. Mm-hmm. I saw a, a, a very um, thick sauce that would cover 
all the different vegetables or the meats. All right. Um, I, I just I anything that you think our listeners that you would want to tell our listeners that would sort of um, highlight what you feel is is a, a does not a discovery necessarily, but for you a, a common thread or something to a way to approach the study of Indian cuisine. I think the thing, one thing that's important is um, an Indian meal is, it's kind of um, synchronic in the sense that it's not one course necessarily after another. It can be, but not necessarily. So when all the, so what you do is when the dishes are served, so you'll have your rice or your bread, you'll have some vegetables, you may have meat, you'll have a, maybe some yogurt like a salad, you'll have a pickle. What you do is you have to, it's kind of mix and match. And in a sense, the eater is the chef. In, and what I mean by that is if some people like food milder, some like it hotter. So that's the advantage of eating with your fingers, really. I think Indian food should be eaten with the fingers because you can kind of take a little bit of this and that. Um, if you want a little bit of pickle with your meat, you, you can do that. You kind of mix it up and you create it as you go along. You don't eat, and, and like the, the lentils, the dal, for example. And I should have mentioned dal. That's something that's really intrinsic to almost all Indian cuisine is lentils and um so you know you may put some of that in your rice you may eat that so you kind of create the meals you go along and i think that's really important and um you know indian restaurants have these they've divided it up into appetizers entrees sides you know because they're trying to replicate the western pattern but that really isn't um isn't true in some parts of india you eat the sweets with the meal in gujarat for example the sweets will be served as part of the on the tali on the on the plate so, you know, that's it's not one thing after another. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, it makes me want to explore more. And I had to chuckle a little bit because you, I mean, you have been to India, what, over 15 times yes. back and forth, yes. visiting family and, and just and touring. Um, but you said uh, most of your knowledge as far as the dishes, the modern day dishes come from the neighborhood you live in, correct? Yeah, we live in a very diverse neighborhood. <laughs> and so in little India, I suppose you would call it in, in well, Chicago. Yeah, they don't call it that here, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because it, if it often those um, the, the, tr- the translation into another culture of the foods, it changes it a little bit, let's say like Italian-American food. But do you find a lot of the Italian cuisine stays true to the roots? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have these, like, um, the standard restaurant food is kind of a hybrid. But, you know, we have these, one, you had them in New York, too, these mm-hmm. wonderful little dhabas, these taxi cabs, dry, and they're, they're, they have, like, a hydra body food. Oh, I love it. There's so many of those. And it's really authentic. I mean, it's, uh, and it's just filled with, you know, men who don't have wives. And so they, the food is really good. You also have some Gujarati vegetarian places, which are very nice and serve that kind of food. So I think there's a mix of standard restaurants and then these uh, these wonderful little um, you know hole in the wall that have really um, you know I, I think pretty authentic food and these and these are things I bet people living in Delhi or Calcutta I don't think they would have a chance to experience it I think living in an American city where you have so much diversity really gives you a lot of um, you know different uh, flavors right so they can learn about their own culture and their own and their own regions by coming traveling all the way to america <laughs> that's great well it's it's truly very interesting there's so much more to to really to know about um and and read about particularly in your book 
um, and only a short time for us to talk about it. So we could only graze the top of it. And now I feel like grazing at an Indian table. Yeah, me too. Mm, no. yeah. <laughs> well, Colleen, as always, it was, a, it was a terrific pleasure. And you can read more about Colleen at her website, ColleenSen.com. And the book, again, is Feasts and Fasts, A History of Food in India, published by the University of Chicago Press. Colleen, thank you. Thank you. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.